Hello, welcome to The Signal. I'm Emma Wilkie. In this show is where we feature audio storytelling from the University of King's College School of Journalism. Ahead on the program, some people on Twitter are calling today No Hijab Day. Others say a headscarf is important for how it focuses attention on what's really important. How she looks or how beautiful she is, that's secondary. It's her mind that comes first. We'll hear two perspectives on the hijab. Maduro or Guaido? Tensions continue to mount between Venezuela's would-be leaders and people around the world wait anxiously for resolution. We are supporting the interim president in Venezuela because he has a solution for Venezuela. You'll hear my conversations with some Venezuelans in Halifax about the political situation that's taken hold of their home country. But first... People in Halifax who rely on public transit may soon have to pay an extra quarter for a bus ride. Halifax Transit recommended the fare increase to council in a new budget plan. Councillors discussed it at Wednesday's budget meeting. If council approves the final budget for transit, the adult bus fare will be $275 starting in October. The increase is expected to bring in about $800,000 in revenue. We sent our reporter Nabal Snan to talk to bus users and find out what they think. I don't think any increase is, is very good when it comes to something we all rely on, but I mean, I guess if they feel like they have to, they have to. I'm not exactly sure how the costs break down or anything like that, so I'm not sure if my opinion would really be justified. I know that as a consumer, of course I don't like paying more, you know, I'd much rather pay what I'm paying or, or less. I'd really like to see, uh, I live out in Bedford, and a little bit more frequency would be nice because I have to wait every half an hour to get a bus. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. And maybe, maybe cleaner buses, not to really complain, but sometimes you can come into some pretty nasty messes. I don't think there's been an increase in a number of years. Costs tend to go up. I think a 10% increase is not probably not unreasonable. I hope that they are looking at improving some aspects of transit planning and programming. That would be, I'd be very happy to pay more for that. Anything specific that you're looking for? Uh, I think they need to improve some of the bus runs in uh, areas of HRM that are not well covered and uh, I think uh, rethink the frequency of some of the uh, runs as well. Well, I didn't know about it until just now, but I don't really see a point as to why they could justify another increase, um, especially because 250 wasn't all that long ago anyway, so they'd have to have a pretty good reason for doing it, and just off the top of my head, I can't really think of any. Since the last increase in 2013, have you seen any improvements? Not really. I mean, the automated stop thing is the only thing I've really seen change. Otherwise, like, in terms of bus schedules, bus frequency, things like that, nothing's really changed. I think it's ridiculous myself. It should stay the way it is. And people that can't afford to get the bus and the bus passes. Like my bus pass is $100 a month. Barely, I'm barely affording that. But otherwise than that, I'm against it. Totally, totally against it. Yeah. I don't know, I take the bus a lot and I feel like if the ticket price goes up, like that's kind of unfortunate. But also like cost of living does rise. So I do kind of understand price increases kind of all across the board in life. 
If it was approved, would that make you use the bus less? I'd like to use the bus less myself just for my own health, like walking to work and stuff. But no, it wouldn't, unfortunately. Halifax Transit says its fares are among the lowest in the country, and an increase is necessary to counter rising costs, partly due to inflation. It also says there are currently two programs in place to reduce bus fare costs for people with financial challenges. The Low Income Transit Pass program and a project through the Department of Community Services. Last summer, Halifax got a new celebrity, the agave plant in the Halifax Public Gardens. The Coast newspaper named it the best highly famous person in its annual Best of listings. But why the fuss? Two decades after it was planted in the public gardens, the agave plant bloomed last spring. It was expected to die, but survived to delight visitors until the fall. And now, it's left a legacy. 158 seeds. This week, the Halifax Regional Municipality gave them out to people for free. Over the lunch hour on Thursday... Signal reporter Josh Young went to give us some on-the-spot coverage. So tell me where you are. Yeah, so I'm here uh, just outside the Horticulture Center here at the Halifax Public Gardens. It's a huge light-up here for the agave plants. The light-up is probably uh, going down Spring Garden Road was at the end, parallel to the end. There's people here from all ages, mostly uh, between the 40 and 60 group, like this. A mix between men and women. It's a huge oh, crazy. Of people here today. So, what are they all lined up for? Yeah, they're lined up here for uh, seeds from, from the agave plant that was blooming over the summer here at the Halifax Public Gardens. Uh, there's 158 seeds available. Uh, everyone gets one, and judging from the crowd, it looks like there's going to be probably just enough seeds for everyone, if not just a bit fewer than the people here. Wow. Sounds like there's lots of people there. Yeah, I mean, they're moving pretty rapidly. People are just going in and out getting these in no time. The line's moving very, very rapidly. Can you tell me more about the seed? What does it look like? Yeah, it's it's fairly small. They're putting them in plastic bags. They're not going to get crushed by anyone, but they're probably like... I would say a millimeter in length. They're, they're not that big. Oh, that's quite small. But it grows into yeah. a big plant, eh? Yeah, the plant grows into about three to six feet in, in length. And width, it goes between six to ten feet. How does one go about growing an agave? Uh, so you need, first of all, the agave needs lots of sunlight. So wherever you plant, it needs to have a lot of access to the sun. And you need a lot of space for it because it does grow so big. And you need it in a kind of a sheltered area because the leaves are really sharp, so you don't want little kids or pets running and, and scratching themselves on the leaves. Yikes! Well, it, so- it sounds like things are excited. Are people people are feeling a, a happy mood to get these seeds? Everyone's in a very good mood. Everyone's smiling. Uh, they're all happy. They can get off from work and get some of these seeds. Everyone seems to be uh, fine just standing in the cold for a few minutes to, to get them. Well, that's so exciting. Thanks, Josh. All right, thank you. They ran out of the seeds before the lineup ended, so unfortunately about 20 people in line were not able to get a seed. But later, Josh caught up with Ken McInnes, one of the last people to get a seed. 
Why did you decide to come and get one? Well, we've been following the plant ever since it went out, and we had that cold snap in April, and we've been watching it blooming and then going to seed, and, and I'm a tour guide, and I bring groups in here, and my wife and I have been watching it well ever since they put it out. So it's exciting to see it and then now be part of the final final bit yeah so what are you planning to do with your seed well my wife is the indoor gardener i suspect we'll plant it we'll check which medium is good i suspect some sandy soil we have a southern exposure in our apartment so that's where it'll go so you said an indoor apart uh, apartment so these agave plants can go pretty big yes but i'm i'm uh, getting long in the tooth so i'm not sure we're going to have to worry about it getting too big in my lifetime for the people who receive the seeds, they may have to wait about 20 or 30 years before their plant blooms. Patience is a virtue. This week, the Juno Award nominations were announced. Many Nova Scotians were represented in the list of nominees. Miles Goodwin, the April Wine frontman, is nominated for Blues Album of the Year. Classified is nominated for Video of the Year for his song Powerless. And Halifax-born singer Sarah McLaughlin will host the Junos on March 17th in London, Ontario. Here she is with her song, Monsters. When we were young, there are always creatures lurking
You're listening to The Signal on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax. This is audio storytelling from the University of King's College School of Journalism, and I'm Emma Wilkie. Still to come, we'll hear from Venezuelans living in Halifax about what their families are experiencing back at home. We'll find out about dueling campaigns around Muslims' women's rights to wear or not wear the hijab. And we'll dive into a story about a month of polar dips. <laughs> That's all ahead. You can follow us on Twitter at SignalHFX. This week, more protests against Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro across the country. His opponent, Juan Guaido, has the support of world leaders including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Donald Trump, but some are worried that could lead to a military coup. Here in Halifax, the Venezuelan community is speaking out. I spoke with several members about their plans to raise awareness about the crisis in their home country and why a possible change in government gives them hope. Tulio Quintero and Felipe Valera are both fathers living in Halifax. They share stories of the hardships back home and have high hopes for the changes that Juan Guaido could bring. They're gathering other local Venezuelans to share information and stories to people who may not be aware of the situation back home. Valera says, because of the unpredictable changes in inflation in his country, millions of people in Venezuela aren't able to access basic needs. My family, I have uh, my parents there. Uh, they are retired and receive a pension from the government, but that pension is equivalent to just one, two dollars, no more, so that they cannot buy food or pay services or anything. So our people, for my family, they depend on us. Quintero's three daughters are all students here in Halifax, but he says his 30-year-old son is still in Venezuela, experiencing the worst of it. Six months ago, Quintero's father became ill back home. So we had a uh, so sad experience because yeah. there no medicine. We couldn't find doctors because all, all of them left Venezuela. So my father died, so passed away in my son's arms in the ambulance looking for a doctor. An ambulance made around to the, the whole city they couldn't find a, a hospital who received my father. Both are hopeful that more rallies across the United States and Canada will raise international awareness. But to Valera, it's less of a political conversation. This has nothing to do with politics. That's have to do with human rights, with the right of people to, to eat, to work. Quintero and Valera say the hope for change is strong in their community here in Halifax. We are supporting the interim president in Venezuela because he has a solution for Venezuela. But for some, the situation isn't as clear-cut. Hands Off Venezuela is a public forum being held at the Glitterbean Cafe on Saturday. The organizers say that the crisis has been manufactured by the media and that Canada should not be supporting Guaido in power. Quintero and other Venezuelans have plans to attend and share their sides to the story. Among those who are wary is Manuel Abreu. He was born in Canada, but his father is Venezuelan and lives there. I mean, it does worry me a lot. The tension, I think, right now is so high you could cut it with a knife. The newly elected leader in Brazil, the government of Colombia now, and the Trump administration... I really don't think they're in a position to be dictating foreign policy to other countries. 
Although not every Venezuelan in Halifax shares the same political views, they all agree people need to know about the real state of Venezuela. Joining the information session on Saturday is Alejandro. He didn't want us to use his last name because he's afraid for his family's safety back in Venezuela. We didn't expect a regime like this to take over our lives and our property and we want this to change. We, we want better. We deserve better and hopefully we will we'll get it if we get the necessary help to, to do it. He says that Maduro has been rejecting humanitarian aid because that would be recognizing that his regime has failed. Alejandro worries that Maduro is cutting off contact between Venezuelans and the rest of the world. But he is still able to contact his family through social media. They all tell me that they are so happy that the international community and the media outside of Venezuela is finally talking to this because in order to, to get to a new government, we need the Venezuelan people to continue the resistance, but also we need the help from outside. Alejandro and Quintero are hoping that other Venezuelans and supporters join them on Saturday to help get their message out. They'll be sharing flyers and information to whoever's interested in listening. Tu cintura, 
Ricky Noriega. Rec 808. Shadow Towers. Puerto Rico. Welcome to the paradise. That's Pedro Capo and Faruco from Venezuela with a song called Calma. Tomorrow is International Hijab Day. It's meant to celebrate and educate people about a Muslim woman's choice to wear the headscarf. But today, a Twitter hashtag is calling on Muslim women to burn their hijabs. The online campaign is called No Hijab Day. As Salam Shuhait tells us, some people in Halifax say it's a campaign that's deeply offensive and could cause damage to women's rights. Women who says they were forced to wear hijab are sharing photos of themselves without the headscarves on Twitter using the hashtag No Hijab Day. Yasmin Mohammed lives in Vancouver. She says she's an ex-Muslim and started the hashtag to share her opinions and stories about women around the globe. She says women in some cultures are oppressed by the hijab and need to be heard. She says this campaign is not anti-Islam or anti-hijab. It's about giving a voice to women who cannot speak for themselves. There are a lot of women that do not have that freedom. There are a lot of women that do not have that choice. And those are the women we need to talk about. Masuma Khan is with the Dalhousie Student Union. She says wearing hijab liberates her and makes her a stronger person and has never held her back from being a feminist and an activist. You naturally tend to focus on what the hijabi woman is saying rather than how she looks or how beautiful she is. That's secondary. It's her mind that comes first. She says Islam does not force women to wear hijab, although some cultures do. She says many of the people commenting on Twitter need to educate themselves about the difference between religion and culture. Islam gave women the rights to education, women the rights to divorce, women the rights to inheritance, women the rights to, to exist not as objects but as actual people. Khan is worried the No Hijab Day hashtag will negatively affect all women who wear hijab and set back efforts to teach people its religious meaning. For The Signal, I'm Salam Shuhi. This week, the University of King's College announced a gym time just for people who identify as women or non-binary. Being a woman herself, Jessica Brian decided to check it out. Olivia Melito is a dancer and regular gym goer. She loves the gym, but she's had some bad experiences. I saw this guy who was working out behind me, and he wasn't really doing anything, which I just kind of thought was peculiar. So I just distinctly remember I looked behind him, and I kind of caught him, like, lying down with his phone by his waist. And I noticed that whenever I looked directly at the camera, he'd, like, fling it behind him, which was really creepy. (laughs) It didn't happen at the King's Gym, but it's still one of the bad experiences some women worry about. King's hopes to make those people feel more comfortable with what it's calling a non-dudes gym time in its weight room. It's every Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. Trish Miles is the athletics coordinator. She hopes this will allow all students to feel welcome in the space and get an opportunity to be active. We're hoping that it will create a safe zone for um, females, non-binary students, and even maybe going forward, just students who are unfamiliar with doing weights, for them to come in and to learn what weightlifting is all about, and um, without feeling pressures of a lot of other experienced people being in here. 
Student athlete Cassie Hayward was a big proponent in getting this plan into action. It's kind of always been at the back of my mind, but I feel like for a lot of people, uh, they come from backgrounds where they have very um, mixed relationships with athletics, um, especially with gym spaces, and it's not always the most comfortable and inclusive space. So I think a lot of it is rooted um, in previous experiences with athletics, with um, with physical health and wellness, um, and kind of feeling like the athletic department doesn't always Uh, represent the kind of person that you are. King's isn't the only gym to offer all women's or non-dude environments. The Dalplex offers women-only swimming on Saturday evenings, and Good Life Fitness also has women's-only gym locations around the city. Zara DeBeau says her decision to use women-only facilities, when available, is twofold. I would say as a woman, I do want a safe space. Um, but as a Muslim woman, that added layer, I'd want to be in a space where I can dress any way that I want to. So that's really what it is about the modesty component and not so much as safety. Unless, of course, um, you're in a space where you feel um, discriminated against because you're Muslim. That's when I would be worried about being Muslim in a, in an, in a gym. Trish Miles says that weightlifting is a healthy way to get in shape reduce stress, and improve confidence. She hopes that with this added opportunity, more women will be able to take advantage of those benefits. For The Signal, I'm Jessica Briand. A group of three friends have been jumping into the frozen oceans and lakes every day for the last month as a part of their 31-day polar dipathon. It's been a frigid task, but it's helped bring in awareness to issues of mental health. Yesterday marked their final dip, but Wednesday's swim was something extra special. Dylan Coots was there. For Mitchell Hepburn, ocean swimming isn't just for summer. He says it's actually quite fun in the winter. It's just cold. It's like, I've been cold before, so each day you hop in, it's just, okay, I'm still cold. Yeah. So it's just you get used to it, get a little numb to it, and eventually, you know, you kind of accept it and get, get almost look forward to the kind of coffee-like head rush that you get out of it, and, you know, really fires you up for the rest of the day. And he would know. Hippern and his friends Sid Fraser and Coco McNeil have been jumping into the water every day for the last month. It's a fundraiser to raise awareness for mental health issues. For this dip, they teamed up with Bell Let's Talk Tay organizers who brought towels and coffee for the Brave Winter Swimmer supporters. Oh, hi. Yeah, we got to get all these boxes to the beach, so there are towels. <laughs> About 50 people made the leap despite the freezing rain and wind. Phil Elford was one of them. Um, it's a show support because, you know, it's, it's not something that we all want to do and it's, it's a tough experience. And uh, I, to a lesser extent, I think it's something that, that a lot of people go through on a daily basis. Um, this is more physical, they have more mental, uh, mental uh, challenges and, and difficulties. But it's something we're just trying to do. It's, it seems a little bit simple, but it's, you know, it's the awareness, the amount of people here. The three organizers has used the month of dips to fundraise for Phoenix House. The local charity offers services for youth at risk. You know, we're super happy we've been able to do it for a great group like Phoenix House. At first, they were hoping to raise two to three thousand dollars for Phoenix's family therapy program, but they've already surpassed eleven thousand dollars. I mean, we still would have been happy if we got two or three out of that, you know, but here we are, day 30, we're already up like 11, so we passed our goal two days ago, and we're shooting for 12 or so here. Uh, we got a couple days left here, and it's been um, super rewarding. Organizer Coco McNeil says it's all about bringing light to an important issue. It's wild how many people came out. This is probably the, the worst day in terms of 
you know, uh, weather conditions. Um, but uh, yeah, that was absolutely amazing uh, to see so many people come out. And uh, yeah, that was super exhilarating. Will they do it again? Hippern says that anything, even ocean swimming in the winter, is worth it for the cause. For The Signal, I'm Dylan Coots. That's the show for today. If there's anything you want to hear again, we'll be posting a link on our social media feeds. Our handle is SignalHFX on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts on the show. Thanks this week to producer Nabal Sanan, associate producer Josh Young, and social media editor Salam Shuhait. And as always, a shout out to our technician Mark Pinio in the control room and our audio prof Pauline Dakin. I'm Emma Wilkie. We'll be back next week with more stories. Have a great weekend.